Lucille Ball. We think we know her, don't we? We've seen I Love Lucy for the last 50 years plus. We know Lucy, we know Desi, we know their children. But there's a lot we don't know yet. So let's learn it together. On this podcast, we're going to learn about Lucille Ball. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Okay, I don't want you to panic, but we almost did not have I Love Lucy. Um, I, can't, I know, no laughter, no I Love Lucy. What are you talking about? Well, I'll tell you what I'm talking about. When they met, as we all know, on the set of Too Many Girls, Desi Arnaz was engaged already to a young lady by the name of Renee DeMarco. She was a dancer. And Lucy was dating the film director. His name was Al Hall. So they were already in relationships when they met on the set of Too Many Girls. But Destiny stepped in. And they got together, and we got gifted with that togetherness in the making of I Love Lucy, the dynamic duo, the original dynamic duo, not Batman and Robin people, the dynamic duo, Lucy and Ricky Ricardo. (laughs) Um, They uh, met, they fell in love, and, and we were blessed by that union. Originally, though, they were going to call them Larry and Lucy Lopez. They were going to be the Lopezes. But the studio decided that there were way too many L's going on. Larry and Lucy Lopez. Uh, Too many L's. They thought that people would make fun of the name and not take them serious. So they ended up calling them the Ricardos. Ricky and Lucy Ricardo, as we all know. But... um, then they brought on William Farley and Vivian Vance to be their neighbors and best friends. But um, they didn't really like each other. They they complained all the time. They fought all the time. Okay, so what was the difference between that and Ethel and Fred? Fred and Ethel fought all the time. They said in the studios and rehearsals that they would get into match shouting matches. And they would call each other names. Well, they called each other names on this show, too. How many times did Ethel call Fred old, fat, and bald? (laughs) So I guess their off-screen relationship was a lot like their on-screen relationship. And Fred was, uh, William Farley was kind of hard to work with sometimes, so they say. Imagine that. Can you imagine Fred being difficult? Well, let me tell you. He was. And the reason why he would get so angry in the rehearsals, you won't believe this. William Farley would get upset if he had too many lines in the script. Who gets upset about having too many lines? I don't think I've ever heard of an actor saying, Oh my God, I don't want this script. There's too many lines in there for me. I can't. I can't. So William Farley would actually rip out some of the pages in the script. He would get so mad. If he saw a page where he had too many lines, 
he was said to have thrown a temper tantrum and rip out the page and storm off. He was off like a prom dress. I'm out of here. Do you know why uh, William Farley would get so upset? He had memory problems. And it was difficult for him to remember a lot of things at once, so he wanted short lines, small parts. That is not something you hear often from an actor or an actress. Fred, 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 Fred. Ah, I don't know. It must have been frustrating for him, though. I'm not making fun of him, but, oh my goodness, that was certainly an uncommon thing. Uh, Ethel Mertz, the part that Vivian Vance played, a great lady, nice lady, um, but um, she had some issues too. They weren't really sure how long she was going to be in the show. Maybe that's why um, during the course of I Love Lucy, the part of Ethel Mertz had three different middle names. In one episode, Ethel's hometown, she was called Ethel May Potter. Middle name May. Remember that when her father came in and told them about the billboard for the show said Ethel May Potter, we never forgot her. <laughs> and then she was Ethel Louise Mertz in the episode where she and Lucy had bought the same dress to sing that Cole Porter song, Friendship, Friendship. And then in the episode when they made the Aunt Martha's salad dressing, Lucy called her Ethel Roberta. Ethel Roberta. So she was Ethel May, she was Ethel Louise, she was Ethel Roberta. <laughs> Three different names. I wonder what they were thinking or maybe they just didn't pay that much attention to the fact that they had given her three different middle names. I noticed it though. But um, when Vivian Vance was on the Dinah Shore show years later with Lucille Ball, she spoke about the contract that she had with Desi Lou. Check this out. And actually, Lucille Ball was embarrassed a little bit on the Diner Shore show when Ethel told this little tidbit. According to Vivian Vance, she had an at-will clause in her contract that stated, you may be terminated at any time with a 30-minute notice. Can you imagine going to work, doing all that rehearsing, with the back of your mind saying, they could send me home in 30 minutes. So they'll be sending you home basically as soon as the show is over. But um, never the contract, of course, never came through and they never let it go, as we all know. But that's a lot to deal with. I don't know what kind of dedication I would have had knowing that if they changed their mind or if I lose too much weight or what was it, her hair color had to be a certain level of blonde and knowing all that, how much dedication, how much can you put forth in acting? Well, Vivian Vance did it. Contractor knows she gave her best performance every single day she was there. Actually, Vivian Vance's husband, her second husband rather, she had four husbands over her lifetime. One of her husbands, Philip Ober, played in uh, I Love Lucy. Do you know that? Did you know that? Have you seen that? Actually, he played in there twice that I know of. Once he played with as Dory Sherry, the episode when they were in Hollywood, and Lucy wanted to trick 
uh, Dory Sherry, not knowing that all the time she was talking to Dory Sherry. Well, actually, the actor that played Dory Sherry was Philip Ober, Vivian Vance's actual husband. <laughs> he also played in the episode where Lucy was going to win the $1,000 if she pretended that uh, there was a guy who was going to knock on the door tonight and you pretend he was your first husband and convince your husband that this is your first husband before they met. And if you pull this off, we'll give you $1,000. And the first guy came up who actually was the um, uh, hobo that Vivian Vance, Ethel, had ran off before. Well, the second man who came up, who was the actual guy from the show, his name, Philip Ober. He was Vivian Vance's second husband. And they were married at the time that he was appearing on the I Love Lucy show. And from what I understand, the reason they put him on the show is because when they would come into the studio and watch the dailies, he would be there with, with his wife. And he laughed so hard at rehearsals that Desi Arnaz decided to put him in the show. It wasn't that he wasn't an actor. He was already a, an established actor. He played on, you know, I Dream of Jeannie, Mikhail's Navy, I Spy, you know, etc. Um, so he was a good. He was already an actor, but Desi Arnaz was so impressed by his talents and by his acceptance of the I Love Lucy show and his support of his wife. He actually wrote him into the script a few times. Great scripts. Great show. Okay, am I the only one who loves the episode with Vita Mita Vegemin? I think Vita Mita Vegemin wasn't even a word before I Love Lucy. I'm sure it wasn't a word. Okay, but the actual Vita Mita Vegemin bottle. Were you wondering what was in that bottle with the faces that Lucy made? I mean, it's 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 one of the scenes that that's reprotrayed in lots of comedy skits and different uh, competitions. They always want to play Lucy, and they always want to replay the scene in Vitamin Vegemin. I don't know. It's a, it's a fabulous scene. I really can't blame them. But I always wondered what was in that bottle. I know it wasn't a real Vitamin Vegemin, of course, because there is no such thing. So, for you and for me, I looked into it. It was a substance or whatever you want to call it called apple pectin. What's apple pectin? I don't know. So I looked it up. It's actually a dietary fiber. It comes from apples. It comes in powder. It comes in pills. And they use it for dietary purposes. They also use it as a thickening purposes, right? You could buy it at Walmart today. Uh, it's, and it's gluten-free. Woohoo! Oh, my God. <laughs> Uh, but the thing of it was, Lucille Ball hated apple pectin. She absolutely hated it in every form, the taste of it, the reason for it. And I don't know why they decided to put something in a bottle that she hated. But look at the expressions that she made when she tasted it. We all remember those. They were original. She hated Vitamita Vegemin as much as she hated apple pectin because they were the same thing. So those facial expressions and the whew, and all that that Lucille Ball made when she was taking the Vitamita Vegemin on the commercial, those were real. 
<laughs> so I know they sell Vitamita Vegemin in all the gift shops and things. And actually, I bought a bottle when I was at the Rocky Mountain Chocolate Factory one day. But mine was filled with Red Hots, uh, the little candies Red Hots. I actually got to see that same expression when my little niece got a hold to the bottle that I had of Red Hots. And being a young child, when she tasted the Red Hots, she made pretty much those same expressions that Lucille Ball made because they were hot. So I got a chance to see my own version of Vitamita Vegemin in the face of a little girl um, who had sneaked Auntie's bottle of Vitamita Vegemin filled with Red Hots and made the same ooh faces and grimaces and um, all that good stuff. So it was really cute. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Let's talk about her hair, Lucille Ball's hair. Uh, we know she was, we know she was uh, born brunette, and actually, I thought she was stunning as a brunette. There aren't many pictures of her as a brunette, but if you go back through some of your old books and pictures, you'll be able to see that even as a brunette, as beautiful as she was, as a redhead, she was actually very stunning very regal looking uh, as a brunette and the reason she dyed her hair red was for guess what attention she was up for the role of may daly in the movie dewberry was a lady remember that movie we talked about it earlier she made it with bob hope in 1943 hysterical comedy i know you've seen it but that's the reason she dyed her hair red in the first place she wanted to stand out from the other actors and actresses and, and who wanted the part. And guess what? She won that part, basically based on the fact that her hair was bright, 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 bright red. They saw it. They loved it. And they casted her people. And it was on from there. She loved it so much also. She kept her hair that color for the rest of her life. And that's mostly, not mostly, but that's a lot of what we we see when we see other people portray Lucy, you have to have that red hair. You can't go onto a set or onto anything, a stage or anything else, to portray Lucy and not have that red hair. You'll just probably be playing someone else. I don't know. I don't know. It just won't be Lucy. She's known for her red hair. And it's not just dull red hair or fire engine red hair. It's called Lucy Red. Hello, there's a Lucy Red. Um, she was uh, dedicated to her craft so much that she dyed her hair for the part. That's pretty good. That's dedication. That's Lucy. Um, she was dedicated to her craft, you know. She liked what she did, and she did it well. Remember the, um, I'm going to show you how dedicated Lucy was. Lucy's Italian movie, when she was in the grape bin and they were stomping the grapes and she got into the little altercation with the other lady because Lucy got tired and wanted to sit down and they were throwing grapes at each other and smushing each other in the face. Uh, actually, Lucy, in actuality, in real life, was choking on a grape during the part of that scene. But you can't tell it. She kept her composure throughout the entire thing until they said cut. Now, I did not like watching that because I am such a fan of Lucy 
I love Lucy, Lucille Ball, yada, yada, Lucy, anything Lucy, that the lady she was fighting with made me so angry because if you notice in that scene, when Lucy threw the grapes at her, she was very genteel in it and she more like, ah, uh, tossed the grapes gently towards the woman's face. And they hit her, you know, they, they touched, they made contact. But listen, when Chicky Boo threw those grapes at Lucy, I just about lost my cool. She threw those grapes so hard at my Lucy that the tree that was behind Lucy, the leaves shook. Why? Because she threw them so hard, they even hit the tree that was behind Lucy. And I, for some reason, maybe I'm too much of a fan. I did not like that. I didn't like that at all. I thought she was just doing way, 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 way too much. <laughs> maybe that's how her mom thought also. Because, you know, that, that off-camera voice that you hear in a lot of the episodes that goes, uh-oh, uh-oh, you know, when certain things would happen, mostly with Lucy. Do you know who that voice was? The off-camera voice going, uh-oh, in different parts of the I Love Lucy filming? Because Lucille, uh, Desi Arnaz was the first one, I believe, to film a sitcom in the first place, to film a sitcom. 35 millimeter film, very expensive, very expensive. First of all, uh, Desi Lu would want to make sure that his staff were well paid. So he and Lucille Ball took pay cuts so that they could also pay their staff nice wages and be able to afford the filming of I Love Lucy on 35 millimeter film. They set their self back to put others forward and let them shine. So anyway, they would always film from beginning to end in front of a 300-person live audience. Desi also said that he thought Lucy performed better in front of a live audience. You know, it gave her more to work with. It gave her a feeling that she loved, and she actually performed live better than she did not live and um so he always made sure there was a live audience there for her to perform in front of but that uh-oh that we always heard in the background that was lucy's mother Dee Dee. she was at every single performance she was at every single taping and that was mommy that was lucy's mommy Dee Dee, going uh-oh in that in that taping in that um, audience, um, she was proud of her daughter. She loved what her daughter did. Um, there was such a lack of support for the businesses around the area that they filmed "I Love Lucy" because everyone was at home watching the show. So check this out: the department stores decided to close early. <laughs> Why? No one was in the store. Everyone was at home watching I Love Lucy. So they said that the uh, people would not shop. They were not buying gasoline. And also Pacific Bell reported that 
During the 30 minutes that the I Love Lucy show was on television, there was no, very little rather, I won't say no, but very, very little telephones being used. I don't know about you, but I don't talk on the telephone when I'm watching my favorite show. And come to think of it, my phone didn't ring when Lucy was on. Did your phone ring when Lucy was on? Uh, nope. And that was pretty nice that the department stores and uh, and other vendors around the area recognized this because not only did they get to save 30 minutes of electricity and, you know, staff wages or whatever, that also gave their staff a chance to go home and watch I Love Lucy too. you know? They got a chance because who didn't want to watch I Love Lucy? It was really a great show. I know I'm probably just telling you things you already know, but that's what I'm here for, honey. Uh, till they sold, <laughs> they sold Desi Lou Studios. I believe it was to Paramount. I think it was when they were going through a divorce. <sighs> so sad. But anyway, they sold it for about $40 million, I believe it was. Well, that $40 million today would be over $250 million. Woo-hoo. $250 million. That was a lot. Wait, that is a lot of money. <laughs> but, it, you know, come on, it's I Love Lucy. I would buy that studio in a heartbeat if I was, you know, another studio and I want to capture the best. What 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 else would you buy besides Desi Lou? You want the best? You want all the history that comes from the best, comes with the best? You want I Love Lucy, right? Well, get your money together, honey. They only had to get $40 million, which <laughs> that's not a small number today. And it wasn't a small number then. But at least they didn't have to come up with $250 million to buy the studio, you know. And, um, I mean, it's it's well-deserved, in my opinion. It was well-deserved. Uh, Lucille Ball was also the first person to grace the cover of TV Guide. Did you know that? She was the very first person to grace the cover of TV Guide. And 39 issues after that. Um, my brother used to collect TV guides. I wonder if he still does. I know once he did, when they did the remake of the TV guide in honor of Lucy, I believe it was her birthday one year, he managed to get a copy of every single episode that had, every single edition rather, that had Lucia Ball on the cover to give to me because he knew his sister was a huge fan of I Love Lucy. I thought that was a great gift, very thoughtful gift, and he's a very thoughtful guy, and I really appreciated that. So, um, that was, that was, to me, that was something great to have. So now I sit around and I just, I can picture them at rehearsals and Fred throwing his temper tantrums and snatching out the pages and getting mad because you had too many lines and, and running out of the studio. Well, not running, it's Fred, come on. Storming out of the studio, too much work, too much to remember. Oh, oh, oh. running off, I'm off like a prom dress. I'm not staying here. Okay, Fred, great. And Vivian Vance wondering if she can pull this part off and be true to Desi Lou, be true to Lucy and, and Desi Arnaz. And the whole time in the back of her mind thinking, oh my God, they can fire me in 30 minutes. 
okay, where am I going to go after this? And Lucy, with the stress of being funny, being articulate, being being all that she was, mom's watching, dad's watching, and uh, 300 other people, not dad, Desi's watching, and 300 other people watching, and still being able to perform at the level that she did. It was, I think, a real amazing thing to put up with and to deliver as well as they did. I don't know many with the qualities that the dedic and dedication that those four people had, but it, w it was great. It was great, and it showed. It showed. I worked for a company once, and it was a rough job. It was a tough job. You know, it was a very serious job. Actually, I loved it. Uh, I worked with great people. But the work that we did was very serious, very intent, and it was, you know, a very quiet place. And people were always on edge because everything we would had to do with our job was so important that it affected a lot of other people. So we always wanted to make sure that we put our best foot forward and forward and forward to give, you know, community the best that we had and the best that was there for them. So everyone was always like, oh, tight, tight, tight. And not me. No, no. It wasn't wasn't my style. I, I, I work better when I'm in a good mood. So my the president of the company was in the elevator with me one day and he said, I just have to ask you this. Every time I see you you're smiling. There are always people hanging out at your office. You make people laugh. I've never heard laughter on this floor the entire time that I've been president here until you came to work for us. What is it? What's going on? Are you? What are you guys doing over there? And I had to explain to him, we're not goofing off. We're still getting our work done. But in order to keep the disposition I need to do my job successfully and well, I need to laugh. I understand the importance of laughter to a person. I understand the importance of hugs to people. So he said, you laugh? Yes, I laugh. I laugh every morning before I leave the house because it may be the only laugh I get all day until I get home. And he said, what do you, what do you mean you laugh every morning before you leave the house? I said, well, let me tell you. I watch an episode of I Love Lucy every morning before I leave home. I put my little, guess what it was in those days, VHS tape in the player, okay? And while I'm getting prepared for work, I play an episode or two, depending on how early I get up, of I Love Lucy. It puts me in a better frame of mind. I laugh, I giggle, I slap my knee, tee hee, tee ha. And by the time I leave the house, I'm good. I'm up. I'm ready for whatever you throw at me so I can face these things in a better frame of mind. Laughter will put you in a position where when things come up against you, you can better attack them. You're not grimacing. You're like, okay, I'm good. Bring it. I, I got it. It's cool. I got it. I've already seen Lucy today. I've got my laugh. My brain is already, 
you know, laugh. my brain is laughing. Okay. I just, I just feel better when I'm happy. And I don't think you can watch I Love Lucy, first of all, without laughing. I don't think laughter puts you any place but in a better place. So I told him, yes, try it. And <laughs> at the Christmas party that year, later on that year, he found me. Uh, he didn't find me. I wasn't hiding in the elevator under my desk. But he did manage to come on over to me and he said, you were right. I laugh every morning now before I leave home. And I was like, really? Do you? Okay. Good move. Good move. So what are you, are you watching? I love Lucy every morning. He said, I don't have any, uh, I love Lucy, but there's a show that comes on television, uh, in my area that I can watch early in the morning. It's called Andy Griffith. I said, okay. Actually, that's a Desilu property. <laughs> so in essence, you are still in the Lucy category. Keep watching that. He said, well, my wife watches it too now, and things are actually better at home. Our mornings are better. You know, we watch it, we laugh. I said, does it make a difference to you, whether it's something you've seen already and, you know, you're watching it for the second or third time? Nope, doesn't matter. I can I love to laugh. It makes me a better a better man. It makes it makes us both in you know in better places. It makes us feel good. That's great. Feel good. Laugh. Feel good. Always make sure that whenever you can, add a little humor to your life. It's a good thing for your soul. It's a good thing for the people that have to come in contact with you. And it's something that will make you in a better frame of mind. When adversity comes up against you, if you can just laugh, right? Try it. Okay, people, it was great talking to you again. Hope to see you soon. Keep laughing. Keep smiling. But of all things, keep laughing. And have a great day. Bye. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. This is Quest, and we are here to talk about Miss Lucille Ball and Mr. Desi Arnaz. Okay, I know I talk about Desilu often, the studio Desilus, but there's a lot to say, really. But one thing I forgot. I guess I actually owe thanks to Howard Hughes. You heard me. Howard Hughes. Hughes, the Howard Hughes, the philanthropist, the business mogul, the investor, the pilot engineer, and yes, the film director, Howard Hughes. So when I speak of Desilu, guys, I'm going to have to give honorable mention to Mr. Howard Hughes. Why? Howard Hughes, Desilu. I never put those two together. Well, I didn't either. But he actually did influence the purchase of the studio. Right, Howard Hughes? Desilu? Here's what happened. Howard Hughes purchased RKO. Remember RKO? The icon with the big antenna with the 
lightning bolt behind it and you know, it looked like a rainstorm and mostly on the late night movie the last movie you see called the midnight cinema or midnight whatever whatever would be the last thing they show before tv went straight off and all you got was that flag rko was that movie well in 1948 howard hughes purchased rko studios and the reason he purchased it was he wanted to be famous he wanted to be that guy he wanted to be the one people talked about and pointed at, you know, as the guy who owned RKO, Howard Hughes. He already had a lot of accolades, but he liked that limelight that came with being a big movie studio owner, you know, being linked with the starlet's names like, you know, Ava Gardner and, you know, Snap Snap Paparazzi everywhere you went. And he liked that part about owning RKO, but... There's a lot more to owning a studio, as he soon learned, than just getting your picture snapped by whoever TMZ was at the time. There was a lot of work that came with that. He hadn't he hadn't thought about that part. The work that came with the business. You know, there's always the good, but there's always the work that makes the good possible. And, you know, there were a lot of things that he wasn't totally prepared for. You know, he said he had a lot of engineering problems and, you know, the things about the studio that he didn't know how they ran. And I'm not sure how well he was at taking advice, you know, from people who supposedly did know that he hired. You know, if you're going to hire someone who you claim knows, at least give them the benefit of letting them do what they do. But anyway, uh, actually, the industry said only one really good movie was ever produced when uh, Howard Hughes owned RKO, and that was a movie called The Outlaw. The Outlaw was actually a Western with uh, Jane Russell. Remember that name, Jane Russell? Fabulous, fabulous actress. The, the movie was um, a Western. It was this long scene in the barn with uh, Jane Russell sitting in some hay and uh, Howard Hughes was said to have spent way, way, way too much time like just zooming in on Jane Russell's attributes, shall we say, and had a special brassiere made and designed by him just for her, just for this part. That's kind of creepy. But anyway, it was the only thing supposedly the studio produced that was successful you know, and that pumped his chest up, of course. So he went on to make other stuff and a few unsuccessful and costly adventures. Two years later, um, by 1955, he put the studio up for sale. You know, that limelight, that, you know, dream he had of being that guy and producing movies and, you know, nothing wrong with dreaming, nothing wrong with wanting. Go, go with your dreams and work towards your wants. But in 1955, he put the studio up for sale because he noticed that was not his craft. So, guess who purchased the studio? General Tire and Rubber Company. Yeah, you don't think a tire company or a rubber company or something, you know, so hardcore or steel and, you know, seems so different from a movie studio and a tire company. But anyway, they did. They purchased it from Howard Hughes. 
and it was a come come one take all deal. There were a few ones who some who wanted the land, some who wanted studios. I'll take the office equipment. I'll take this. I'll take that. And Hughes was like, "No, uh, uh-uh. uh, it's one or take all. You take the land. You take the studios. You take the office. Everything, all in. That's it. No pick this, pick that." So anyway, General Tires did end up purchasing the studio from Howard Hughes. I don't know what their plan was to do with that. Um, Maybe just bulldoze it and just keep it for the land or whatever. But supposedly they wanted to purchase the property and write it off as a loss because they were so successful in the tire and rubber industry that they needed a tax write-off. And they thought purchasing the studio would give them that opportunity um, or just bulldoze it. Whatever they anticipated, they ended up nixing those plans. Uh, it didn't work out. Whatever that plan was they had to do with that, uh-uh. didn't work for them either. Didn't work for Howard Hughes. Didn't work for them. So they put the property back on the market to the tune of $6.5 million. Everything. Just like Howard Hughes has said, you take it all or nothing. Land, studio, equipment, property. That's it. $6.5 million. Now, I don't know um, what that sounds like to you, but it sounds like a lot of money to me. And I'm not sure if one day it'll come when it's not, when I can put the word just in front of $6 million, but that day hadn't come yet. But anyway, they put it on the market for $6 million, everything. And supposedly when Desi Arnaz heard the studio was for sale, he saw opportunity. You know, he was a visionary. We had already seen that. He invented a lot of things like the rerun, which we didn't even know. We uh, had something we could take and film. It's expensive, plus it hadn't been done before. But Desi Arnaz did it and put those episodes on film, allowing them to be played later, uh, called a rerun. And even though to Desi Arnaz, $6.5 million was a lot of money, he knew he could make it work. He knew Hughes didn't. He knew General Tyre didn't. But he knew he was the visionary that could make it work. You know, um, so one problem, which is probably a problem (laughs) to many and also to Desi, $6.5 million was not the amount of money he had. Not free and clear. He would have to risk the majority of their personal assets. And I say there because... Don't forget, we're talking about Desi Arnaz and Lucio Ball. Everything they did at this point, they did together. They were the dynamic duo, don't forget. And at this time, Lucy was left out of a lot of the meetings and, you know, business part of the Desi Lou business part of it. She was an actress. She was Lucy. She was Lucy Ricardo. So he kept her involved in that, and he would take care of the business aspect of it. So he didn't include her in the decision to purchase the studio because he didn't want her to worry about it. But, it, you know, that's a lot to worry about. So for advice, Desi Arnaz called his friend. 
to see what he thought about him purchasing the studio. That friend being Howard Hughes. Yes, the original owner, Howard Hughes. And when Desi Arnaz explained what the situation was, you know, the money situation, you know, the risk involved, Howard Hughes was said to have told Desi Arnaz, grab it and grab it quick. Whatever it takes, grab it. You see, uh, he knew the value of that property. He also knew the value of what was on that property, and he knew his friend, Desi Arnaz, and he knew that even though he may not have been able to uh, make his dream come true on that property and in that studio, he knew his friend Desi may be able to. Um, so hearing that from him, from the man How Howard Hughes himself, he bought the studio. Desi Arnaz bought that studio. He risked the assets of himself, his uh, everything. He borrowed the $2 million from Bank of America that he needed to negotiate the final agreement, which he negotiated from $6.5 million to $6.15 million. And that's what he bought the studio for. He negotiated it down. He ran the money, you know, just the way he could. Everything was looking good. Bam, bam, bam. Until something ticked in his head. Dun, dun, dun. Guess what? Yeah, we know. Lucy. Who is going to tell Lucy, my darling, darling wife, who I have left out of all the decision-making in this decision that, my darling wife, not only do we own a studio, but, honey baby, my loving wife, my support system, we are all in. Everything we are risking for this dream of the studio. Aha. Okay, who's going to tell her? One thing was for sure, as far as Desi Arnaz was concerned regarding this conversation, it was not going to be him. He knew his wife, and he knew this information was something that he had kept from her, and he knew he was not going to be the one that told her, because <laughs> in those days, you wasn't going to be able to text <laughs> or send an email. You were going to have to stand in front of this woman and tell her, guess what, honey? I just risk everything we have on an opportunity that can make us all wonderful, wonderful for many, many years. Okay, that's great. But but uh, back to who's going to tell her. <clears throat> so, Desi Arnaz, being Desi Arnaz and knowing his wife, sent Edwin Holly. Now, Edwin Holly was the CFO. He wasn't married to Lucy. Uh, I don't know what made Desi pick Edwin Holly. I don't know if he drew straws or put names in a hat and it just came up Edwin Holly. I don't know. Maybe Edwin Holly doesn't know. You know, maybe he just had a really good rapport with Lucy and Desi thought that the news being delivered by him, he would know how to address her in a way that it wouldn't be, you know, 
really, really hard. Yeah, right. Okay, good luck, Edwin. I hope you got a bonus for that one. But anyway, at the time, uh, Edwin's Holly was going to approach Lucy. She was on scene, on set rather, doing a scene with Vivian Vance with just the two of them. So Luce, uh, Desi, of course, was nowhere to be found. He wasn't in the scene, so he made himself scarce because he knew what was coming up. And he knew what was about to happen. So when Lucy went into her dressing room during the during the break, that's when Edwin Holly told her, you know, the great news. Da 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 da. Guess what? You you own the studio, and your husband just bought it, and yeah, you're 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 all in for this. So. Uh, congratulations. And then probably freezing in his tracks and he may have stopped breathing. I don't know what he must have, must have felt or went through expecting anything to happen at this point. I cannot tell you what I would have expected to happen at this point it, had it been me. But anyway, in the true, elegant, regal, Lucy fashion, all she said was this. Is that the decision? To which Mr. Holly said, Yes. To which Lucy replied, Okay. She turned and walked away. She went right back to set and finished filming the scene with Vivian Vance. <laughs> and as we all know by now, it was the right decision. A great investment and a wonderful opportunity for us as well. I mean, you know, there was a lot we gained from that venture, from that stepping out on, you know, from from that risk, basically. You know, a lot of shows came from that. So, we, you know, we kind of all win. You know, people say, oh, I never was a really Lucy fan. I never was a this fan or that fan. I'm like, okay, you watch Star Trek? Yeah, that was Lucy. Okay, you watched this? Yeah, yeah, like, that was Lucy. Uh, here, I got you. You got, you've ever watched a show called The Untouchables? Remember that one? The Untouchables? Yes, you do. Everybody remembers The Untouchables. Well, here's what happened. When Desi Arnaz read the book, The Untouchables, written by Elliot Ness... Desi and Lucy knew they had to put that book on film. The story they had read, they knew had to be seen. They knew they had to bring it to um, an experience. You know, they were television people. They were visual people. So reading this book was so dynamic. When they read it, it was just like, that was it for them. It was, it was, it was, it was, that was it. We had to do this. But unfortunately, uh, Warner owned the property for the untouchables for the book and, you know, all the rights and everything. And Warner had decided not to develop it. I don't know why, you know, for whatever reasons, there could be a lot of reasons, but for whatever reasons, Warner decided not to develop the property. Uh, which was great news for Desi and Lucy because when Warner dropped the property from its repertory, Lucy and Desi picked it up. Yes, so you drop, I pick up. 
Uh, they were very happy about that because, you know, they wanted it anyway because they were so intrigued by the book that they wanted to make it the experience on a big screen. You know, that's how they that's how they rolled back, you know. And uh, they were so intrigued by the role. Desi want, uh, even briefly, briefly, briefly considered playing Elliot Ness himself. You know, well, who wouldn't? But really. He knew that the role required a certain kind of actor, and he respected that, and he knew he didn't have that gangster swag. So, you know, even though he was happy to have purchased a property, he wanted to also give it its due respect. And their first choice uh, to play the lead role of Elliot Ness was the actor Van Heflin. You know, uh, Van Heflin. But, unfortunately for Lucy and Desi, for whatever reason, Van Heflin turned down the role. He turned the part down. I don't know why. Uh, I'm going to look into that. There's a lot of documentation, a lot of different places. I find as much as I can, read as much as I can, and then bring it to you. But anyway, their first choice, Van Heflin, was turned down by Van Heflin. So, moving on, because, you know, we will continue. Their second choice of actor to play Elliot Ness was same first name, different last name, familiar actor, Van Johnson. Yes, Van Johnson, we've seen him in the episode of I Love Lucy when she played his dance partner. Yes, that Van Johnson was the choice of Lucy and Desi to play the role of Elliot Ness in the pilot film, The Untouchables. And after getting in touch with, with Mr. Johnson, um... He loved the part. He had read the book or whatever. He was familiar with the character. They liked him, and he liked them, and he liked the role, and everything was agreed upon, and he accepted the role for the uh, amount of $10,000 for his part as Elliot Nesk, and uh, Desi had decided to break the pilot up into two parts, so... Um, it was going to be a two-night thing, you know, stretch it out, get some publicity. So anyway, Van Johnson was going to play Elliot Ness in the uh, Untouchables as Elliot uh, Ness, so for $10,000. Arrangements were made, production gets underway, Desi is happy, and everyone's happy. Or, or so we think, you know, we build the sets, we get the engineers hired, and, you know, it's that time, and... Monday morning, we're going to start filming this big production. Half a million dollars put into this big production. You know, we've got Van Johnson, Elliot Ness, everybody else is on on staff, and we're going to start from the one. And dun, dun, dun. Oh, boy. What does that people say about best laid plans? Well. No different here for Desi and Lucy. The Saturday before the Monday that filming was supposed to begin, they receive a call from Evie Johnson. 
or Evie Johnson, depending on what side of the planet you're from. Mrs. Johnson, wife of Van Johnson, remember him? He's getting ready to play Elliot Ness in The Untouchables. Well, Evie Johnson, wife of Van Johnson, apparently was not very happy with the salary and the financial agreement her husband, Van Johnson, had made with Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz to play Elliot Ness in The Untouchables. So Miss Evie Johnson made a phone call to Mr. Desi Arnaz. And Miss Evie Johnson said, if the pilot is going to have two parts, rather than paying my husband the $10,000 for the entire pilot, why not pay him $10,000 for each part of the pilot, which would bring their total to 20000 Not what had been agreed upon previously. Okay, what well, things happen. You know, negotiate. That's what managers are for. I don't know if she was his manager, but you don't ask, you don't get. But she furthermore added what I call uh uh-uh pressure. If Mr. Johnson, my husband, does not receive this new salary, he will not be at filming on Monday morning. Oh, okay. Uh, thank you, uh, Desi Arnez, who was said to been friendly, as he thought, with Van Johnson. I'm sure was surprised to get this phone call from Evie Johnson, Van Johnson's wife, rather than you contact me personally. Why is your wife calling me when it should be you? And I know, I can imagine what that conversation sounded like, especially after reading about Marcella Rabwin. She was actually married to Desi's personal assistant. She was the wife of his doctor. And she was quoted as saying that actually Desi Arnaz, especially if he was angry, had the worst language of anyone she had ever heard. But I can't imagine what kind of language I would have had if I'm thinking on Monday morning, we all good. I've spent a half million dollars. Everything's agreed upon. Everything's bought. Everything's paid for. Sets are built. People are sitting around getting paid. I've bought this. I paid contracts, yada, yada. And then on Saturday night, your wife calls me and tells me that you're not happy. You should have called me and told me you're not happy. And Desi, you know, look, this is a grown man. He did not appreciate being bullied and having the entire production, you know, basically put on risk in the 11th hour. So Lucy and Desi, what? Yes, basically bossed up on him. So... Are we going to deal with the bullying and betraying from our friends? Or are we going to stop production and lose our investment, our dreams, our everything all in? Mm -mm, No, not Desi Arnaz, not Lucille Ball. Not going to happen. Here's what happened. Ah, Desi Arnaz 
Pick this Rolodex up off his desk. Start thumbing through the pages. Don't forget, he's been in the game for a while. He's got some names in there. He knows some things. He knows some people. Gets to his name of his friend. Oh, I got a name. Perfect. Robert Stack. Recognize that name. Robert Stack. Just says the untouchables. Okay. Not only did Robert Stack agree to the role of Elliot Ness before he had even seen the script, he agreed also to the offer for the role. Desi and Lucy offered him $15,000 for the two-part episode, plus a percentage of the show's earnings throughout the running of the show, not just a pilot, all future episodes. As long as there is an Untouchables, you're going to be getting paid just for having my back. What? That's what's up. So from October of 1959 until May when the final episode ran, Robert Stack came up for being a friend and and being there in that 11th hour. And and I, when I hear the word, the untouchables, I see Robert Stack. You know, a lot of people do. Um, he's synonymous with that show. I mean, I know they've made remakes, and there's a lot of people who've re-portrayed Elliot Ness, but for myself, I will always see Robert Stack when I hear The Untouchables. I, I wonder if Mr. and Mrs. Van and Evie Johnson ever watched the show. I do wonder, but that's just one, you know, big one, but just one. They did a lot. Lucy Ball, Desi Arnaz, come on now. The, Des- the production from Desi Lou, we're still enjoying today, you know, 50 years later. Their drive, their accomplishments, their successes, they deserve our respect and they deserve our appreciation. They've given us a lot, you know, throughout the years. They've given us themselves. They've given us laughter when things were dark. They've given us themselves and and appreciation and recognition of Lucille Ball. Uh, Actually, July of 1989, there was an award called the Presidential Medal of Freedom awarded to five stellar Americans, General James Doolittle, for being a trailblazer of modern aviation, Ambassador George Keenan for his visionary efforts in Soviet relations, you know, Senator Margaret Chase Smith, the achiever in the fight against the tide of extremism, Ambassador Clarence Dillon, you know, his work with the American and foreign economic policy. And the fifth stellar American awarded the presidential honor. Lucille Ball 
awarded posthumously as the First Lady of Television, one of America's greatest comedians. The citation read, Her face was seen by more people more often than the face of any human being who ever lived. Who can forget Lucy? She was like everyone's next-door neighbor, only funnier. Lucille Ball was a treasure who brought laughter to us all. Love Lucy? Sure. This nation is grateful to her, and we will miss her dearly. End quote. And we truly do. Thank you, Lucille Ball. Thank you, Desi Arnaz. We thank you for that decision to put the tapes on these episodes so we could enjoy them so many years later. Big, big, big thank you. Big thank you. Big thank you. Take care. Keep laughing. Keep taking care. Until we talk again about the legend from Roman scandals to stone pillow, Lucille Ball. <laughs>